All right, well, uh, welcome to All Nations. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful Easter Sunday. Um, yeah, we've gathered uh, to celebrate and remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, human beings, we have long been fascinated with ideas or the idea of defying death and extending life. Just think about how much money our country spends on health care. It's because we want to live longer. We want to live long. We want to defy death and extend life. But even long ago, there's the story of Ponce de Leon and his search for the fountain of youth. There's the quest for the Holy Grail because we don't want to just live you know, for 30, 40, 60, 80 years. We want to live forever. We've longed for immortality. Even recently, a team of Yale scientists, they were able to restore some cellular function in a, uh, in a pig's brain after it had died. Anyone see that article in the news? Yeah, it, it popped up, and I, and I was like amazed. Like Scientists were going crazy that, that they would be able to take a, a, a pig brain that was dead and, and restore some of the cellular function there. And, and people were wondering, man, is this, is this the first step towards being able to revive a dead human brain? Does this mean that through science, one day we will be able to defy or defeat death? Or you might be thinking, man, is this the beginning of the zombie apocalypse, right? If they start doing things like that. Um, Friends, I want to tell you, uh, there's actually a good reason. There's a good reason why all of us fear death. Why all of us have this kind of longing for immortality, this longing for eternal life. It's very natural for us to experience those fears and those longings. And I believe that the reason why we do is because that desire has come from God himself. God himself has placed this desire for life in us. He's created us for life. God himself despises death. That's why we despise death. The Bible calls death the last enemy, the last great enemy. I want to tell you today that that we don't have to wait for science to eventually overcome death. We don't have to wait for science to help us defy and defeat death. God has already done that through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, uh, our passage for today comes out of Mark chapter 16. But before we get into the reading of God's word, I just want to give you guys a little context to all the things that have been happening before Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. Jesus has died. He died on Friday afternoon around 3 p.m. And then a man named Joseph of Arimathea, he asked Pontius Pilate, who was the kind of ruler over Jerusalem, the Roman ruler, governor over Jerusalem, he asked him for his body so that he could bury Jesus Christ. Otherwise, Jesus would have just been thrown in the body heap with the other thieves on the cross, with the other dead uh, bodies at the hand of Rome. So Joseph of Arimathea asked, can I have Jesus's body? I want to bury him in my tomb. He had to do this quickly because the Jewish Sabbath would begin on Friday evening. And so on the Jewish Sabbath day, the Jews weren't allowed to do work. They weren't allowed to bury their dead. They weren't allowed to touch dead bodies. And so 3 p.m., Jesus dies. There's only probably a couple more hours of sunlight. Joseph of Arimathea quickly goes to Pontius Pilate, gets Jesus' body. He wraps him in in a linen cloth and buries him in the tomb, closes the tomb up with a heavy stone. Saturday, the Jewish, path, the Jewish Sabbath passes, and now it's early Sunday morning, early Sunday morning. And this leads us to our text in Mark chapter 16. 
Would you turn there with me? Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. I'll be reading from the ESV. And if you don't have your Bibles, it's going to go up on the screen. May God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a man, a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. The word of the Lord. Daniel Aiken, the, uh, prof- uh, the president of Southeastern Baptist Seminary, he writes, there are three basic options that we can take, three basic positions that we can take when it comes to Jesus's resurrection, okay? Uh, the first is this. We can believe that it was a hoax, that the resurrection of Jesus was a hoax pulled off by the disciples and the early church. Maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe the disciples stole his body and fabricated a story about the resurrection all for personal gain also that they could start a new religion and then they could be the heads of it, that they could profit, right? They could gain power and influence over using Jesus and manufacturing a story about his resurrection. That's the first option, hoax. The second option is that it's a myth, that it's a myth, that early Christians, after the first generation of the early church, the early Christians, they made up the story, And it was embellished over time. The more they kind of wanted to talk and write about Jesus, the more divine he became. The more powerful, the more magnificent he came until finally they're like, you know what, we're going to just write Jesus in and say that he resurrected. But it was all just a myth, all a myth, all a story to evoke wonder, all a story to get people to live a certain way, maybe to live better lives, to live moral lives. And let's, let's create the story of Jesus as the son of God, to get people to act and live a certain way. But it's all a myth. It's just a story. It's like Santa Claus, right? That's how parents get their kids to behave, right? Santa's watching, elf on the shelf, whatever, and so behave. The third option is this, that Jesus' resurrection is a fact. It's a fact. That it really occurred, and it was the greatest and most significant event in human history. Those are the only three options that we actually have, the basic three options that we have when it comes to Jesus's resurrection. What do you believe, friends? Do you believe that it's a hoax? Do you believe that it's a myth? Or do you believe that it's the truth? I'm not going to go into too much detail, but let me say a couple quick words about this. First, if you're here and, and you've been influenced and you believe that it was a hoax by the disciples for personal gain, we have to then stop and ask some very critical questions. If it was a hoax, if they just made it up for personal gain, then why would every single one of the disciples be willing to suffer and die proclaiming that Jesus 
was the resurrected Lord. It's one thing for people to die as a martyr because they were deceived, okay? You can buy into a lie, you can be fooled, and then you can drink the poison and die. You can go and give your life for a cause because you were deceived. It's an entire another thing to you yourself make up the lie and then suffer and die for it. It's another thing for you and your 12 other or 11 other friends to say, we're gonna manufacture a hoax and then we're all gonna suffer and for it. Our friends are gonna suffer and die for it. Our family members are going to be burned. They're gonna be persecuted. They're gonna be beaten. Our church will scatter for this lie. That doesn't make any sense. It's a weird hoax to play. Chuck Colson, a famous Christian who was involved in the Watergate scandal, a little bit of American history. That's Richard Nixon and things like that. He was involved and he actually went to jail for the Watergate scandal. This is what he said. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep the lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. Okay. What about myth? If it's not a hoax, if it's not a manufactured hoax, what about a myth? It's just a story that the Christians, that Constantine, right, and the early and the church made up. Many believe that Christianity is just a religious myth. But the Bible is the most well-attested ancient document we have. Okay, I just want to say that. We have seven ancient copies of Plato's writings. Okay, you guys know the story of Plato. Maybe you're a philosophy major. There's like the Republic and other writings of Plato. We have seven ancient copies of that. Ten ancient copies of the life of Julius Caesar's that we can find that kind of date and that date close to the original writing of the life of Caesar. Ten copies. Homer's Iliad. You guys read Homer in grade school, right? The Odyssey and the Iliad. 643 ancient copies of Homer's Iliad. Do you know how many copies we have of the New Testament? Ancient copies of the New Testament. 5,600 copies of the New Testament that are dated within the first 100 years of Christianity. Within the first 100 years of Christianity, we have 5,000 or 5,600 copies. Let's go to some dating. Okay, nothing comes close to the historical textual attestation of the New Testament. Let's go talk about dates. The Gospel of Mark, we just read it. It was written around 65 AD, right? 65 AD. When did Jesus die? Jesus died around 30 AD. So the writing of Mark and the death of Jesus is 35 years. Paul's writing in Galatians, that's dated to 45 to 55 AD. That's a 15 to 25 year gap between the death of Jesus. And yet these men testified that Jesus is the risen Lord. But people say, that's a myth. You guys just made it up. Here's the thing about myths, okay? You can't create a myth in that short a spirit, uh, period of time, okay? You need a generation to die off so that nobody knew what really happened. Nobody were, was there as eyewitnesses. And once the generations die off and there is enough time, then you could start 
reinventing history. You could retell history according to your liking. But while the eyewitnesses are still alive, you cannot start telling myths and lies about central key historical figures. Think about it. The last time the Dodgers won the World Series, 30 years ago, 1988, okay? And now suddenly, imagine if a bunch of fans of the Oakland A's up in Northern California start telling a myth, you know what, in 88, we won the World Series. In 88, Eckersley uh, struck out Kirk Gibson. What would we do? we go crazy. There's no way LA would allow that lie to spread. We would never allow that myth to be retold. Why? Because we have people who were there at that game. We have people who were there. We don't even need video evidence. We We don't need photos. People would say, I was there. I heard it on the radio. I know for a fact 30 years ago, we won the World Series. I'm not going to let you tell that lie. We crushed that myth. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for Jesus Christ and these gospel stories, these gospel narratives, the writings of Paul. They were eyewitnesses, and they were, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people saw Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, in the flesh, The best explanation for the empty tomb and the origin of Christianity is actually that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, that he died on the cross and rose from the grave. The disciples gave their lives for that truth. And the whole of Christianity hangs on this singular truth. Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're a bunch of fools. If, G- if there was no actual historical resurrection of Jesus, then we are the most pitied of men. We should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's nothing to Christianity if there is no resurrection. It is the foundation for our faith. This is how Mark writes his account of the resurrection. He writes it as a historical fact. As surely as the crucifixion of Jesus was historical, the resurrection of Jesus was historical. If you read that over again, just eight verses capture the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. And his words are incredibly plain. Okay, I'm not going to ask you if you guys are liars, but when I lie, I don't speak plainly. I start like talking more, right? I try to explain more things. You have to like, kind of like convince them, right? We start blabbering, right? Blabbering and blabbering and blabbering, explaining, and then we just trap ourselves in our own life. Mark does no such thing. No explanations. No embellishing. The tomb is empty. The angels speak. The women are shocked. Mark tells these events plainly and briefly. Let's look at what he says. Three women go early in the morning to anoint Jesus' body with oil. It's Sunday. That's the first opportunity. Now that the Sabbath has ended, they go the first day of the week to anoint Jesus' body with oil. The fact that it's women as the first eyewitnesses, it actually also supports the argument that this was no myth and no hoax. Because if you're going to kind of retell the story and get Christianity going and make much of Jesus, you need to not use women. Because in the Jewish law, the women's, a woman's testimony had no weight, had no bearing. A woman could not testify in court among the Jews, okay? And so if they're gonna say Jesus is alive, that the tomb is empty, they shouldn't have used women. They should have used like Jewish leaders. They should have used Pontius Pilate. They should have used Roman soldiers, men of authority, men of esteem, men of, 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 of power. But instead, Mark says it's the women, why? 
not to his advantage, but because it actually happened. Because the women were the first at the tomb. That's the way it happened. And these women, these women who saw Jesus die on the cross, these women who saw Jesus as his body was laid in Joseph's tomb, they went to anoint Jesus' body with oil. It was an act of love, an act of devotion. You see, Joseph of Arimathea didn't have time to do that. You were supposed to anoint the body with oil, but he only had time to wrap it in linen and lay him in the tomb. The women knew this, so they said, hey, we need to anoint his body. So they go. But there's something very important that Mark is telling us, and there's very important, something very important here. These women who loved Jesus dearly, who saw Jesus die on the cross, they did not expect the resurrection. What were they expecting to see? They were expecting to see a dead body. Jesus' bloody, beaten corpse there in the tomb. They were expecting to weep and bawl as they looked over Jesus and, 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 and see his nail-pierced hands and feet. That's what they were entirely expecting. They weren't expecting the tomb to be empty. This is actually one of Mark's themes throughout the gospel. No one believes Jesus. No one believes Jesus. Jesus told his followers over and over that he would die and in three days rise again. He told this to his disciples. He told this to the women. He told this to his followers. And they should have said, yes, I believe. But nobody did. Because if they did believe, then on Sunday, they should have went to the tomb with expectation and anticipation saying, let's see the risen Lord. Let's see the risen Lord, right? Let's see him in glory. Let's see his words come true. But these women who loved Jesus and followed him, they went expecting to see a dead body. They didn't believe Jesus' words. His disciples weren't there at the tomb. They didn't believe Jesus' words. And this is one of Mark's things. There's just so much unbelief. Unbelief as people consider and respond to Jesus. But you know, for us, as I study this, I actually find comfort in their unbelief because I struggle with unbelief as well. If you are here and you struggle with faith and you're like, gosh, it looks like everyone else has it figured out. Why does it seem like everyone else understands Jesus? They have no problem believing and confessing and singing about and praying about the death, the life, the resurrection of Jesus. But for me, it just won't click. I don't get it. Friends, I want to tell you, you're in good company. Mary of Magdalene didn't always get it. Peter, James, and John, they didn't always get it. The disciples, they didn't always get it. And, and we here, we don't always get it. But there's hope for us. There's good news for us. Christ is here for us to help us in our unbelief, to convince us and to shine his light upon us. Well, these women, they're expecting the dead body. But to their absolute shock, the large stone in front of the tomb has been rolled away. Matthew tells us that God actually is the one who moved the stone by a supernatural earthquake. And they went inside. And when they went inside the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. Matthew and Luke, they tell us that this man was an angel, okay? He was an angel, and the women were absolutely alarmed, shocked, and dismayed. And like all the angels do in the Bible, like every time somebody sees an angel, we think of angels as like these like cuddly, cute, fluffy, angelic beings, but they're terrifying. They're terrifying. That's why every time you, and a person meets an angel, the angel says, don't be afraid. <laughs> like, don't be afraid. Like, I know what you are looking at, I know it's terrifying. Don't be afraid, right? The women were afraid. They were afraid. 
He says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. What is the angel saying? It's like, look, this is where his body should have been. See with your own eyes. He is not here. He is risen. And I love that. I love that because what the angel is saying, what God is saying to us is, look, seek, seek the truth, seek the facts. The angel didn't say, oh, just close your eyes and wait for a feeling. Wait for some ominous kind of supernatural experience and then you'll believe in Jesus. No, he says, go and see. See for yourself whether or not Jesus' body is there. And I think this is important for us as well. As we try to understand Jesus, as we want to follow Jesus, it's so important for us to be Christians, not because we felt something at a youth retreat 15 years ago that we kind of didn't explain and it felt really heavy and spiritual, so I guess God's real and I'm gonna live for him. No. God wants us to believe him both with feeling and with facts, with heart and with our minds. He wants us to see to think, to examine, to look and ask Jesus, are you truly the risen Lord? Our faith is not blind. Angel says, see, see the place where they laid him and believe. See and believe. Now our versions, they say he has risen or it maybe says he is risen. And so it makes us think that like, oh, Jesus raised himself from the grave. And I think a lot of us imagine that, like Jesus died in the grave, and then just by his power, by his majesty and authority, he just, boom, like rises from the dead. But that's actually not what happens. And Mark gives us a clue through grammar. The verb that he uses, uses a voice called the passive. It's a passive verb. And so when the author, when, when, when a passive verb is being used, that means that you're not the one doing the action. It means something's happening to you. Something is happening to you. And so Mark is actually telling us that Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. Actually, Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's the better way to translate. Jesus has been raised. Question is, by who? Answer is, he's been resurrected by God the Father, by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Just as the Father laid his judgment upon his Son on the cross, the father had now vindicated his son by raising him up from the dead. You see, before Jesus went to the cross, he spent time in prayer. He spent time in prayer. And he was wrestling with God's will. And in John chapter 17, we have this, this, this prayer of Jesus. It's called the high priestly prayer. And in verse five, Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your presence. Glorify me in your presence. What is Jesus praying for? He's saying, Father, vindicate me. When I go and die for the sins of men, when I'm beaten, when I'm humiliated and mocked and nailed to the cross, Father, vindicate me, glorify me. Don't let me go down as a liar. I told everyone I'm gonna die and three days later, I'm gonna rise again. I still told people I'm the son of God, that I am the Messiah. Don't let me be seen and known as a liar, Father, glorify me. And the Father answered his son's prayer. He glorified his son, Jesus, by raising him from the grave. You see that? This is what sets Christianity apart 
from all of the other world religions, okay? If you study theistic religions, all the gods are powerful. So they'll say, God is mighty, so worship him. All the gods are, are transcendent. They'll be, yeah, God created everything. God is great. God knows everything. He sees everything. Th these are common, common kind of theistic statements. And so you should give your allegiance for such a great, high, mighty, all-knowing God. The other world religions will also say, God, God is love too. They'll say, God is loving. God is merciful, right? So if you just humble yourself before him, he will show you favor. You know what sets Christianity apart? Only in Christianity does God come, take on flesh, and die, and give his life as a ransom for his people. Only in Christianity does God condescend in this manner. Only in Christianity does God come to us, dwell among us, ransom us through his death and, his ri uh, and rises again from the grave. This is what absolutely sends Christianity apart. It's the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The final thing that the angel says to the women, it's in verse seven, but go. Go and tell his disciples, that's Jesus' disciples, and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Why? Why is this important? I already shared earlier. The disciples didn't believe. Jesus says, I'm going to rise on the third day. You guys should have been here. They're not. Where are the disciples? They are hiding. They're hiding in fear. When Jesus is arrested in Mark 14, verse 50, we are told that all the disciples fled. All the disciples abandoned Jesus in his time of greatest need. And God's command through the messenger is this. Go and tell them. Go and get them. Go and assure them. Go and give them hope that Jesus is not dead in the grave, that this whole thing of the kingdom of God is not over, but Jesus is alive. His words are true just as he told you. This tells us so much about the heart of God, guys. Because in this moment, the disciples must have been in so much shame, especially Peter. You see, in Mark's gospel, there's a lot of contrast between Jesus and Peter. Jesus says at the Last Supper, he says, one of you will betray me. The shepherd, they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And then Peter speaks up. He's like, no, I will never betray you. Even if all fall away, I will never fall away. And Jesus says, Peter, you know what? Before the rooster crows three times, you will betray me. You will deny me three times. Jesus gets arrested and he goes into the upper courtroom uh, or upper room of the chief priests. Only Peter follows, but it's in that courtyard where Peter denies Jesus three times and he goes away and he weeps bitterly. There's a strong contrast between Jesus and Peter. The words of Jesus, the the arrogance of Peter, the resolve of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus, the unfaithfulness of Peter. And Mark says, you know what? You see, uh, church history also tells us that Mark was Peter's disciple. So Mark had special insight to Peter's experience of the gospel, of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And so Mark has this, this awareness of Peter's journey with Christ, his brokenness, and his restoration. And so the angel says, go and get the disciples and Peter. Because Peter's probably like not even with the disciples. 
He's probably in the most destitution, feeling the most failure, feeling the most shame because he did deny his Lord three times after he arrogantly said, I will never, I will never. But God's first words are go. Go and tell them. Go and get them. Go and give them hope. Let's go and restore them. You see, God is not a God who condemns us in our failure. The disciples failed. Jesus didn't run. Like, you know, if it was me, I would have shown up and been like, booyah, you guys, you guys didn't believe me. Look, and like in your face type of moment, but that's not the heart of our God, right? He says, look and see, hear and believe. There is restoration in the midst of failure. And this leads us to our closing implications of the gospel. And it's this. It's not only have the disciples failed Jesus. It's not only the the women who didn't believe in Jesus. It's not only Peter who didn't believe in Jesus. We, we haven't taken Jesus at his word. We haven't believed in him. We haven't trusted in him. And we have so often failed Jesus. This story of the resurrection tells us that failure does not have the final word. You might be here today and you might feel like a spiritual failure. You might feel like a spiritual has-been. You might feel like, man, God will never forgive you, never accept you, and you're drowning in your own guilt and in your shame. The good news is this. Your failures do not have the final word. Our risen Lord is able to restore you. Our risen Lord is speaking to you right now to come and to believe, to believe and receive his grace. The resurrection gives us assurance that our failures do not have the final word over us. The second implication is this. The resurrection verifies the truthfulness of Jesus, the truthfulness of Jesus. He truly is the son of God. He said he was the Messiah. He said he would be the the, the king of Israel. He said he would seek and save the lost. And if he didn't rise from the grave, all of that would have been talk. All of that would have been just campaign promises. We're about to go into an election. We're going to hear a lot of campaign promises from presidents who are going to tell us they're going to make this country great again. They're going to fix the economy, fix our schools, fix our families, fix our country, all of that stuff, right? Jesus, through his resurrection, makes good on his word. He's not just someone who tickles our ears. He is who he says he is. He truly is the son of God. The third thing, the third implication of the resurrection It secures our justification. What is justification? It's being forgiven. It's being made right with God. It's being counted as innocent and righteous, and we desperately need that because none of us here are perfect. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need his grace, but the only way we get that is through justification. Paul writes in Romans 4.25, Christ was raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. Brothers and sisters, Jesus said, I have come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. I have shed my blood for the payment of your sins, to atone for your sins. But here's the question. How do you know that actually worked? How do you know that through the blood of Jesus that you're actually forgiven? Because here's the thing. We can love someone and we can die for them. We can say, I love you, and I'm going to give my life for you. It happens. It happens over and over again in our world. But 
How do we know that that's actually going to produce eternal life, eternal security, and forgiveness of our sins? The answer is through the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus says, I will give my life as a ransom for you. And to seal that, to prove that, I will rise from the grave. I mean, think about this. When you purchase something online, if you don't get an email confirmation of your order, how does that make you feel? You're like, you're so anxious. You're like, did you get my order? I mean, I see the bill on the, cre- I see it went through on my credit card statement, but, but I mean, it's the, without the confirmation, I go nuts, right? I, I go nuts. I'm like, oh my God, I emailed them back. And sometimes I do multiple orders and I end up canceling orders. We need confirmation that the order went through, right? This is what the resurrection is. It's confirmation that when Jesus gave himself and died on the cross for our sins, God accepted that. That God accepted it. That the blood of Jesus is powerful, mighty to save us. If Jesus stayed in the grave, if he died and never rose, it's no different than you saying, hey, I love you and I'm gonna die and because of my death, you're gonna live forever. How do we know that's gonna work? Because of the resurrection, we can believe that we are justified and forgiven. Fourthly and finally, because of the resurrection, guys, we have hope and confidence that there's life after death. Okay. I mean, we hear it all the time. Even non-Christians believe that you die and go to a better place. And we're like, oh, I don't want to be a mean person or a cynic, but on what grounds? On what grounds do we have to say when you die, you will go to heaven. On what grounds do we have to to make that audacious claim that I will have everlasting life, that you will have everlasting life? That is such a huge thing to say. What justifies us making that claim? What justifies us telling that to other people? Jesus Christ, who rose from the grave. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, so too shall we. That is his promise to us. Just as Jesus died and defeated death and rose from the grave, his promise is that if we in faith, if we believe in him and die in faith, we too will rise again. The scriptures call Jesus the firstborn of the resurrection. He is the first of the resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life. What that means for us is then we get to follow him. Just as he was resurrected, we too will be resurrected. That there is life after death. And you're not just saying that to make yourself feel better at a funeral. There is a truth. There is a promise that there's life after death because Jesus has shown that to us. Brothers and sisters, there's good news for us here then. Because if you truly believe that there's heaven, if you truly believe that there's life after death, then we don't have to grip our lives in this world as if this is all we have. Are you living like that? Are you living like this is your one life? That what you have, what you gain, what you experience, that that is everything to you, that this is your treasure, because if that's the case, when you lose it, you will be crushed. We will all lose our loved ones. We will all lose our health. You cannot, you you can die, and then however much money you have in your bank accounts or in your estates, that is of no benefit to you upon death. Brothers and sisters, how many of us are living like this life in this world is all that we have? The resurrection tells us that we have so much more. You have so much more. 
through faith in Jesus Christ. And if anything, this is the worst it's going to be. This is the worst it's going to be. Because when Jesus returns in glory and we rise from the grave with him, every day will be better than the day before. Every day will be better. We will experience God's love, God's grace, even deeper and more perfectly and more beautifully. And here's the thing. When people, when pastors would say that to me, I I didn't understand. What does that mean? For eternity, every day will be sweeter than the day before. Um, Becoming a father helped me understand. Uh, I, uh, my, my baby boy, he's, uh, his name is Seth. He's here. You can say hi to him after service if he's not sleeping. Um, he's, he's, uh, he, we're going to celebrate his 100-day anniversary. His 100-day celebration, I guess that's a Korean thing, uh, this Saturday. So he's been alive for like 93 days right now. Hallelujah. Um, weird thing. Uh, when he was first born, people were like, oh, did you cry? I didn't cry. You know, I was like, who are you? You know, uh, this one pastor was like, hey, I mean, when you looked at your son, were you just shocked at like how much love you could have? Like, could you ever imagine loving someone like that? And I was kind of like, nah, man. Like, I, I was like, I, I wish I felt that, but I didn't know, right? He was a stranger. I felt responsible, actually. The first feeling I have when, I, when he came out of the womb, I was like, I got to go to work. <laughs> I have to provide for you. But here's the weird thing. Every day that's gone by, I've fallen deeper and deeper in love with my son. And it's, it's given me a taste of what heaven's going to be like when we get to enjoy and experience a deepening, a growing love with our Savior, Jesus Christ. God has given us that capacity to fall deeper and deeper in love with someone. Brothers and sisters, if there is life after death, if Jesus' words and promises are true, then you don't have to live this life as if this is the best and the most treasured thing that you're gonna have. In fact, this is the worst it's gonna be. And as we walk with Christ and as we experience him and enjoy him and when we behold him in fullness of glory, every day is gonna be better than the first. And we're gonna look back and say, God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. The victory is yours. Jesus indeed is the risen Lord. You can reject him, but you cannot ignore him. Okay, do not ignore Jesus. Make a decision. Think it through. Examine for yourself. Is he a hoax? Is he a myth? Or is he the risen Lord? Because that is what we are accountable for. God is not going to ask us, How much money did you make? How many degrees did you do? How many good deeds did you do for strangers and for the poor? He's going to ask us, do you know my son Jesus? Did you trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? And on Christ alone, we will either be accepted into the pearly throne room through the pearly gates of God, or we will be condemned into the outer darkness. The basis will be on Christ alone. So this is the question. What do you believe about Jesus? Who is Jesus? He, because that question demands a response. How you answer that question will tell us where we will spend our eternity. How will you respond to the risen Lord and King of the universe? Would you weigh that out in your hearts today? And I pray that you would see Jesus as the resurrected Lord. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man. For in him, God, your fullness, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. We thank you and we're amazed that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And though you are so mighty and so beautiful and so perfect, you condescended to us and you walked among us and you allowed yourself to experience hunger. You allowed yourself to be mocked, beaten, judged by men. You allowed yourself to go to the cross and die the death of a sinner. All so that you, Lord Jesus, could give your life as a ransom for us. Help us to see our sin and help us to see you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior. Thank you that the gospel doesn't end with just this, 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 this death by love. We thank you that in the gospel there is victory, that you are the resurrected Lord, that you've defeated sin and death, that Satan is a defeated foe, and so we can trust in you. Help us to do that, oh God. Help us to live in the life and the victory of this complete